C-I-C-D-C-Y, episode 33. Welcome back, my friends, nerds, geeks, and ziglets out there. We have another episode of the Zigbits Network Design Podcast, where zigabytes are faster than gigabytes. As always, our goal is to provide you with real-world context around technology. I'm Michael Ziga, also known as Zig, and I'm your host. Today, the iconic Nick Russo joins us once again. We are picking up where we stopped with Nick on episode 30, Designing for DevOps. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that episode, you can find it at zigbits.tech slash 30. Now, I will say you might need some context for today's uh, episode and topic around DevOps. So if you don't have the context, you can always listen to that episode. Um, and we'll have the direct link in the show notes. For today's topic, we are discussing CICD, which is more commonly known as continuous integration and continuous delivery slash deployment. Thanks for coming back on the show, Nick. How are you doing today, bud? Oh, pretty hot, man. Get this heat wave and uh, sweating over here, but I'm looking forward to this show. Oh, yeah. It's hot here, too. I think, uh, uh, I mean, we're in the same state now, but Albany, New York, uh, um, I think we're hitting the highest it's been since 1953 today. Oh, yeah. That's fun stuff. <laughs> That's great. Um, well, thanks for joining the show again. I appreciate it. Um, so, you know, this is kind of a, a follow-on topic from our, our last show together, which was episode 30, where we just talked about designing for DevOps. Um, and today we're going to talk about CICD. Um, so uh, maybe... And I'm kind of new at this stuff, so um, maybe I'll be like the regular listeners today. Um, can we? I guess we'll just jump right in and talk about what CI is first. Yeah, and I think the one of the important things is in the last uh, discussion when we talked about designing for DevOps, we, we kind of touched on the problem that CI/CD solves, which really comes down to being able to rapidly deploy code, uh, deploy code, uh, having quality at the source, et cetera. We didn't really touch on the individual steps in a pipeline or a build process then, kind of because it was a little bit too technical for that uh, more business-oriented discussion. So in this one, we'll talk a little bit more about specific examples of CI and CD in production and a number of different ways that people can get started with it. I think that'll be interesting. But to answer your question, uh, continuous integration. This is one of those things where if I just blurt out a definition, it's not going to be, no one's going to understand it because it's a little bit of an abstract concept. So I think it's better to tell just a, a couple, a little bit of a story here to, to have it make more sense. And for those who are software developers or have ever worked as software developers, I uh, will certainly be able to relate to this. But even networkers and other technical professionals can probably relate uh, to, to what I'm about to say. So traditionally, in a software development environment, you would have some kind of project. It would have dead uh, due dates. You would assign different work to different people. Every individual developer would kind of check out their own feature or topic branch. So I have my main code base. I'm going to branch out so I can work on the feature that's been assigned to me, and I'm going to work on that for weeks or months. And I'm going to do that in a vacuum, and you're going to do yours in a vacuum, and we create all these silos of excellence that we can work on our code uninterrupted. And there's something to be said about that. Uh, but the big problem is at the end of the project, when we go to merge all the code back together, the likelihood that it's going to work even a little bit is pretty much zero. And you end up with what some people call merge hell because then you end up with merging person A's code into the master or trunk branch, dealing with all the problems, then person's B code, then person C code. And when it all ends up together, you end up with a smattering uh, chart and glowing pieces of a blown up project. And it's not really a good way to go. And I've been in those situations before, um, past experience, maybe in a different life, where um, uh, 
I was attached to um, some developers and they literally had these issues where they had like six or seven different developers trying to merge code together and literally troubleshooting on the spot. Um, hard, But also uh, from our perspective, they had like hard-coded IP addresses and stuff like that in there too. So um, they, they got a little lashing from me. Yeah, well, I can, uh, CI can help you find bad code and I'm not sure it can make your developers uh, do a better, <laughs> better They quality. can't change them, right? Yeah, I can't change them, but... The idea with continuous integration, though, is that rather than me and you working on separate features for six months, we can still work on separate features because, of course, the only way to get big projects done is to do work in parallel. No one is suggesting that or that we not. The difference, though, is that we regularly, typically daily, will push our code up into a central repository and ensure that it gets merged back into the master branch or at least with some kind of regularity, maybe a couple times a week. But it has to be frequent. By doing that, the code will be automatically integrated. And the word integrated is more than just, you know, munged together because we actually want it to work. So CI to me, a lot of it has to do with kicking off automated testing as part of a pipeline. Now the pipeline could have multiple different stages and multiple different test stages, which we'll talk about later, including delivery and packaging and all kinds of other fun stuff that happens after the tests. But really, for the layman, I would say it's probably safe to say that CI is generally going to encompass all of your testing. So this could be anything from checking the syntax of your files all the way to detailed acceptance and integration tests uh, to ensure the software works as designed. And when anything fails along that pipeline, the developers get immediate feedback uh, through a number of mechanisms, like it could be chat, SMS, email, or whatever. They get immediate feedback from the machine that tells them what broke and where and they immediately can target their troubleshooting to that problem. Because this happens regularly, like every day or, or several times a week, developers find out they get small problems constantly. So I merge my code, maybe I have a couple minor issues, I fix them until my build goes green again, and then I'm good. And I just repeat that small process over the course of six months, and then at the end of it, the project works and there's no merge hell. This kind of ties into our conversation last time, Mike, you probably remember about the importance of small batches, uh, the the uh, impact on lead time when you have too much work in process, tying up the company's money and unneeded inventories. Those, those same concepts all kind of apply here. When we take all that big batch of changes over six months and we try to merge them all together at the end, it's like throwing a Hail Mary every time. You know, it's a terrible. You, you need everyone's code to work. It's, it's like throwing 10 Hail Marys at the same time even though you've only got five receivers. It's, well, it's just a bad bad way to go. So the, the idea here, just so um, I'm speaking, I guess, in my language a little bit here and maybe not necessary development or programming language. Um, so you have multiple people on a project, right? And they're doing their own kind of responsibility portions of that project, but they're merging their, their code base daily, multiple times a day, and they're finding out those issues before it becomes that that end uh, merge hell, as you called it, uh, situation where you have 10 to 20 hours where you're trying to figure out all these code issues. Um, you're finding those out a lot quicker, right? That's, that's the whole intent. Exactly. Instead of finding a thousand issues at the end of your project, you find a couple each day and fix them as they come. So rather than defer the, rather than batch up all the problems and all the integration concerns and all the testing, you distribute it daily across your entire organization and individuals correct their own problems, they contribute their own tests and that testing is integrated, meaning when you commit your code, the repository software reaches, and we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail. And again, I'm being generic here just to get the point across. You know, your repository, like GitHub or whatever, reaches out through API calls to some uh, testing organization like Travis or AWS uh, Code Pipeline or something like that, 
and it will run the test pipeline that you've defined. It's basically a regression test. Think of it like, okay. you know, yeah, you're probably familiar with the term regret. We yep. want to make sure that the changes that we did didn't introduce any regressions. Like, did you break something? Yes or no. So we run it through our standard test process because it's really cheap to do that. Um, some of these tests can run in less than a minute. Some may take tens of minutes. But those tens of minutes happen automatically in the background. And once you commit your code, you can, you know, go for 10 minutes, take a break or something, come back get the results and get back to work pretty rapidly rather than sit there for three hours manually testing your code and dealing with merge problems, merge, you know, conflicts with other people. So it really reduces a lot of that unnecessary suffering and the, uh, the requirement for heroics and people needing to do unreasonable acts just to get the code to build. Wow. All right. So everything is automatic then. Once you submit it, it's automatic. That's the intent? That's the idea. So I, I do my git commit and then my push or whatever if I'm using git, for example, and then the testing happens automatically. Um, you can integrate it with chat programs and with emails. You know, For example, when we get to it later, uh, when I push code up to work on my website, I get an email from AWS that says pipeline started. And then about three minutes later, I get an email that says pipeline succeeded. Unless it fails, which it has before, and then I have to, then I go and troubleshoot, and I see that maybe I didn't close my HTML tags correctly because I'm not a web developer. I'm actually pretty terrible at it, uh, but because I'm so terrible at it, I can push my code up, and the machine tells me when I'm wrong. It's way better than a customer calling, or you know, it's way better than uh, someone going to my website clicking on a link that doesn't work. Yep. That's a little bit more embarrassing. And if I were running a business, it would be business impacting too. Well, I like how you tied the business side into that too. I mean, so I guess, I mean, I, I know I'm kind of off maybe the general topic here, but I mean, why wouldn't people, why would you not do this? I mean, it sounds like yeah, you would do this all the time. You, you definitely would want to. I think the one of the challenges is that it's different. Like the, the conceptually, I think you'd have a hard time finding anyone who would disagree with it. But getting it set up takes, you have to have a specific, it's just a new skill, you know, just like most things. Um, that we've always done it this way. We do all our testing at the end. We've got a dedicated uh, QA team, and we've got three months on the schedule for the project for testing, so let's just use that time. What people don't realize is that that six-month project with three months of testing, if you use these techniques, it could be reduced into just a six-month project. That's a 33% reduction in lead time, probably a 33% reduction, reduction in cost, maybe more. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, being rough estimates here, but you can see where this is going. No, that makes perfect sense. Uh, sorry for the the impromptu question there. Um, so you were explaining this a little more detail, and I kind of sidestepped it. I, I just see some great benefits in it. That's really what I'm coming yeah, from. Yeah, abs absolutely. And I've I've uh, I've really started to evangelize this and use it both for my for website and for the open source projects that I run, uh, as well as in production at my customer. And uh, that's a little bit more sensitive, so I can't talk too much about it. But I will give uh, a little bit of knowledge here. For example, these four uh, these four steps that we're going to talk about here shortly, once we get there. Uh, that's going to be what, what we actually use in production. So okay, perfect. Now, I think that I think that just like you said, we we typically apply this thinking of continuous integration to software stuff, but it can be applied more generically. And the example I want to talk about is how we're using it uh, for the specific tool of Ansible. That's just a, a Red Hat open source task execution engine that's pretty awesome. Works really well for network gear, especially legacy stuff that doesn't have great API support. That's one of the reasons I love Ansible is because in my particular customer's environment, we don't use any kind of cool APIs yet. Just because our, our equipment doesn't support it, the learning curve is pretty steep, etc. Again, I think the the thing that <clears throat> excuse me, the thing that we want to return to is last time we talked a lot about defining our purpose. What are we trying to do that our customer needs that they're not getting today? You know, to paraphrase that. 
how do we ensure quality? That was our biggest driver from those who watched the previous episode is we want to improve quality while not increasing cost or lead time. We managed to improve all those measurements, but quality was the number one. Yep. We need to ask the question though, when we run our automation tool to do something on the network or to generate configurations or generate documents, how do we know the machine built the right product? Like you can run a tool and have it come back green and it can spit out a zip file and you can feel really good about yourself, but how do you know that what the contents of that zip file actually work? Um, you know, it's just like everything else is, yeah, I can ping the server. That means everything's good, right? No, not really. It's kind of a similar idea. We need it. We need some way to, you know, quantify the success here. We know our inputs are good. So for example, we had some pre-checking we talked about last time is that my operator goes in and that person, uh, you know, maybe they're configuring, okay, I need to generate configs for this new site. I punch in the IP subnets and the BGP AS and all this other stuff. And we're get, let's say that that's all correct. How do we know all those fabrication steps that we talked about last time, all the individual steps in the process that take that user input that was correct. So for example, the raw materials that we ingested in the production process are good quality. That doesn't mean all the fabrication steps did their job right. You can still get scrap. You can still have problems. We need to make sure that our machines are set up correctly to do the work. Um, and my simplified example here, and, we, and also we want to make sure that we don't work on defective parts. So consider this example. Let's say I'm assembling cars and there's only a couple, there's like four steps here. First, I build the frame, the steel, then I put the wheels on, then I put the body on, then I put, put the glass, like the windows and stuff. Let's just say that there's just those four steps to put a car together. Yep. Simple. So if, if the frame is, let's suppose the frame is defective, like there's uh, there's not enough carbon in the steel or whatever. I'm not a, a metal guy, so I don't know. But let's just say there's something wrong with the frame. It, it's not structurally sound. Why would we put the wheels on? Like it's, it's already broken. It needs to be fixed or reworked or scrapped or something. Putting the wheels on doesn't make sense because if we build that whole car and then at the very end, we find out that the frame was defective, how much money did we just waste building that car? in terms of time and material. So the idea is that when we run these tests and to improve quality, we want to make sure, and we talked about this last time, Mike, is that we fail quickly and that we test individual components starting from the smallest, most atomic unit all the way up to the largest integrated system. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. It makes, uh, it seems common sense. Does that, I mean, honestly, um, and it's fail fast. I mean, you and I have talked about fail fast before and I think fail fast is yeah. great personally. It, it is common sense. And I think what happens with a lot of people is they become so accustomed to saying, well, and this is, you know, it, it, it's, it'd be sensible to say this as well, to say, well, the reason we do so much quality checking at the very end is we want to ensure that the product we give to the customers is good quality. So we wait until we build the whole product and then we deliver to our customers. That's kind of like saying, I'm going to put cookies in the oven and I'm going to check the whole, pr the whole circumference of the cookie to make sure that it's nice and crunchy, but the inside might not be cooked at all. Yeah. You know, so the idea is as you're making the thing, check all the individual pieces so it's properly built throughout. So the pipeline we use in production and this was this went into effect January 2018. So it took a good it took me personally about 2 or 3 weeks just to like get this working and figure it out and get this up to a production status where all these tests were written um and for those who have ever uh worked in development, sometimes writing tests is harder than the code itself, but you, you have to be disciplined and do it. The first phase is a process known as linting, like lint, like the stuff that's in your belly button, you know, like this, it's an old term. What we're really, when we say lint, what we're really talking about is look at the code, look for syntax issues, styling issues, obvious bugs, 
Uh, we can even look for security threats as well uh, in a kind of a static code analysis type environment. So I'm not executing the code. I'm just looking. I have a, a, a tool that looks at my code and tells me uh, your indentation's wrong. You forgot a semicolon. Uh, this call, is, this is a system call that might be uh, dangerous, and I give it a, it's a medium risk for security. So I just want to do this on all my files. This is extremely fast. It usually takes on the order of seconds. Now, quick question. Do you have like a, does it pull in a template or something to do that? No, typically you end up with like a, uh, an RC file, like a config file for these different uh, shell utilities. Like for example, a simple one for Ansible is called YAMLint, Y-A-M-L-L-I-N-T. You can just insert, download it from, or ins, you know, install it through pip, Python package manager, and just run that against your YAML files. And there's an RC file that you can specify, which will say, here are all the specific rules. Like you might say, my lines can be no longer than 80 characters. Well, maybe you want to edit that. Um, but by default, they come with their default settings, which generally work okay. So for example, there's a Python linter that uses, I think, the PEP8 standards, et cetera. So out of the box, these things are pretty good. Um, and those rules can be edited, of course, like most things. But you'll run this thing, and it, it, it just it's, it's very basic checking. Your lines are too long. Your indentation's bad. You have trailing white space. You have too many new lines. You don't have a comment in front of this function, even though you should. You know things that things that may not even break your code, but in the interest of high quality, remember quality at the source. That's number one. Um, we don't want people committing junk code that barely runs because the technical debt associated with that will cost us more later. Does it auto fix it or does it um, alert on it? It doesn't auto fix because the machine, it, it can't really read your mind. Like what, what's the, like, for example, if you have more than 80 characters in a line, it can't just delete your code. Okay. That um, makes sense. Yeah. That'd be yeah, dumb. I mean, so you have to determine, do you want to shorten the line? Do you want to break it up into two lines? Do you want to make, put a function there? Okay. So it's really, it really just alerts and it'll come back with a, a failure that tells you that. The reason we put this first is. Suppose that, let, let's use security as an example. Suppose that I do some static code analysis and I use a tool called Bandit. It's a Python security scanner. It's, it's free, it's pretty cool. So I integrate that with our pipeline. So anytime I see a Python file, I run it through my linter and then in my security scanner. Well, let's suppose I have some kind of uh, security hole where it looks like it might be a shell injection attack and it's trying to like remove the whole root file system or something goofy like that. Okay. Yeah. What I don't, my linter will pick that up and it'll fail. And that's good because I never executed that code. But imagine if the linter failed, but then I moved on to the next step anyway. Uh-oh. Now I just ran, now I just executed the code, right? You know, so that might be bad. Um, that's why, you know, there's a, there's some uh, controversy here. Some people think that you should just run the whole pipeline to get all the failures and then fix them all together. I personally uh, would rather fail earlier and make the prop make the changes incrementally only because if you're dealing with a real security issue like that and you and you execute that code it could be really bad now again it depends on how you've set up your ci pipeline uh, you might have some dedicated hosts that are in a private environment like gitlab or jenkins where you're responsible for all your build nodes or your runners or your slaves whatever they're called um, in those cases, you actually care about taking care of those devices. But if it's something like Travis CI or AWS, it's just a Docker container that gets spun up. So you don't really care if there's a security flaw. But me just being a security minded guy, or at least I think I am, uh, I prefer, I would rather just say if there's a security flaw, fix the security flaw, don't run the code. What's Same here. Point? Unless there's a business reason why not to. Yeah. Right. I mean, or unless you have like a detonation chamber, like yeah. a sandbox. Sandbox or honeypot, whatever you want. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't have that. So, <laughs> so we don't. 
So that's the first step. Um, and, and we can do linting for lots of languages, for Python, for YAML, for JSON, for C, for LaTeX, for just about any structured data type thing. You can do a quick scan and make sure that it works. It's pretty low cost, it's easy, it's fast, and if there's a problem, fail right away. Um, the next step is the unit test. Unit tests within the context of our project were the custom Ansible filters that we wrote. For those not familiar with Ansible, this is what I what we typically use these filters for is parsing. So we'll we'll do a show command on a router, like show IP OSPF neighbor on a Cisco device, for example. We'll get back a big block of text. And we want to take that text and turn it into some kind of structured data so we can test it and pick out the individual pieces to do some kind of arithmetic or checking or whatever. So the individual parser that we write for that, I, I wrote them there in Python. Uh, of course, there's other ways to do that, text, FSM, et cetera, but I prefer to use Python for that. What we want to do is we want to test those individual parsers with some static input. So we're going to stub out all the network devices, and we're just going to pass in a big string. So I'm going to mock up the output from a router, I'm going to pass it into the parser, and then I'm going to test the static input against static outputs. So for example, if I pass in a string and it begins with a router ID and then it has the priority and then it has some other stuff for OSPF, once I break all that out, I know what to look for because I know I passed in a bunch of information as a string, as just regular text, but now on the back end, I'm getting this JSON structure and I can, I can dig into that JSON and pick out the values that I want to test. This is also extremely fast. You have a question, Mike? No, no, no. I said okay. I just, I was just trying to think of it like, like thinking it in my head. So, um, is it? It's not similar to like CSV files and Excel. It's more like, like almost like a. I mean, it's just a JSON. So it's. Is it really more like um, uh, tag separated uh, fields in a in a file? Is that really what it uh, is? Yeah, so the, so the data comes back. So there's, so there's no files per se. I mean, there's a file that has the code, but what happens is in the code, like I'm doing, imagine a function call where I have a function that takes in a string and that string is just a bunch of text from a router. So like imagine you logged into a router, you uh, just did a copy paste of the output from a show command and you paste it into my function. That function is going to return structured data of the text you passed in. Ah, uh, okay. So it'll be structured in a JSON format, and that format's going to vary based on the data. Like, for example, for OSPF neighbors, it's a list of dictionaries. One, you know, each line is going to be a dictionary, which is one neighbor. That's just one example. Okay, that's a perfect example. Thank you. Yeah, all these different filters are have corresponding unit tests, and I've got like 20 or 30 of these things, which means I have 20 or 30 different files with different tests for each one. Those all get pulled into a test architecture, and they get run. And we don't continue until they are, you know, again, if there's a failure, like for example, if I pass in my OSPF neighbor and uh, the router ID should be 1111, but the parser comes back and says it's 17G or something ridiculous, yeah, yeah. like obviously yeah. there's a bug somewhere and we don't want to continue. So if we kind of look at this in terms of dependency, those filters are written in Python and the Python code was linted in the previous step. So by running that code, we're already pretty confident that the style is good, that there's no syntax problems, and that there's no security holes. So now onto the third step is we test our roles. Now in Ansible, a role is kind of like a function. Some people equate it to a class because it encapsulates things like tasks, variables, handlers, files, templates, all kinds of fun stuff. Um, long story short, the role is kind of a higher level of integration. It's another level of abstraction that allows you know, individual network devices can inherit a role. So for example, 
let's say I've got a leaf spine network, uh, a data center, like a class type design. And I might have a role for switches, which is just my general switch config that goes on all my devices. And then I have a role for leaf and a role for spine. So when I go to configure my leaves, I'll say, okay, you're going to inherit the switch role and the leaf role. And when I go to my spines, you're going to inherit the switch role and the spine role. Does that make sense? So you're kind of inheriting properties and logic from these different entities. Well, that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, it, with a lot of what we do, you assign roles to things. I mean, like people have different roles and different groups that they're a part of. So giving roles to a switch or a device makes perfect sense. Yep. So that's the idea behind the roles. Now, when we test the roles, the way I like to do this is because, you know, in order to test a role, you basically just create a very small playbook. And that playbook says just include the role uh, and, and, and execute. So the role test is just let's now that we've tested the filters, the roles rely on a lot of those filters. So let's just test the roles. So we're not actually doing any real playbook work yet, but we're trying to test the roles in isolation now. And so you can kind of see how we're testing these ab- almost like an abstract class in a sense. We're testing an instance of that class in a very small playbook that's designed to focus on testing that role. Does the switch role do what it's supposed to do? Does the uh, does the leaf role do what it's supposed to do, et cetera? The, final, the fourth and final phase is the playbook tests. So this is when we take our actual production playbooks that rely on the roles and the filters, uh, and we go and we do things. Sometimes we go and touch network devices. Sometimes we stub that out and do it locally. Um, th- there's a number of different ways the playbooks get tested. The thing that's interesting is that these, uh, the role testing and the playbook testing takes multiple minutes. So, for example, last time I, t- I ran the clock, the role test takes about five minutes and the playbook test takes about 13. Oh, wow. So when we talk about fail fast, do you really want to wait until the very end? Do you want to wait 15 minutes to get your test results? even though you had a trailing white space, or do you want to fail right away? Clearly, the answer is fail right away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the idea of the play. So you can kind of see how it got progressive. And then by the very end of it, when you see that fourth green check mark, you know for sure that all your playbooks worked. And this is your production opera- This is this, These are the playbooks you use in production. Um, so by designing those tests and committing your code, this entire process gets run automatically. How So... A lot of things happened for this process to work. Um, I see. I personally see the value of this process. I would ask how how much time. I know this is specific to your, um, I guess, not necessarily deployment, but implementation of this process. How much time do you think it took you to implement this process? If we're if we're counting the time it took to build the CI from nothing, it took probably two or three days of, of dedicated oh, effort. Bad. But no, that's talking bad. about the well, if you're talking about the time it took to build all the tests and document them and all that that was a, a multi-week effort okay um you know, and this isn't a huge project i mean there's probably there's a couple hundred files in this project two developers including myself that work on it uh it's only about six months old uh we have only you know we have maybe 15 or 20 targeted use cases so it, this isn't like google scale type stuff by any means but um i, I would say it's on the order of days or weeks to kind of get this going but you're getting a, a fairly big return on investment, though. I mean, if you're if you guys are putting in like roughly two weeks, maybe let's say a month. I mean, you're getting a fairly big return on investment for implementing this. It's been extraordinary in terms of cost reduction and quality improvement. It's been extraordinary. I mean, we would uh, uh, our operations manager. I can't quote him exactly because I don't remember what he said, but it was something to the extent of you know with with the uh, with the increased demand that we've had on our network operations over the past six months we'd be dead in the water without a tool like this. It's not just so much the tool, but it's this process of being able to make changes to the tool to suit customer demand. 
and also ensuring that it has good quality at every step in the process. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, sorry for the, again, the impromptu question there, but I, I just, I, you know, getting an idea from your experiences, because I've never done this, right? Um, and I'm sure a lot of people listening haven't done this, uh, uh, getting the the understanding of what that return is. And it seems like that return, yeah, while, you know, this is a small use case, this is a small deployment, small scale, uh, whatever you want to use for whatever term, um, you still put a small level of effort into it, in my opinion, and you got, you're got you getting a lot back. So there's a lot of investment that you're going to get from doing something like this. Sure. And uh, there's a bonus thing for a lot of these CI platforms. You can integrate them with chat programs, and sometimes that's called chat ops, that's you know, cool. short for chat <laughs> operations. So when I commit code to the repository, a bot will reach out, typically through a webhook, like an HTTP uh, post or something, and say, hey, I need to post this message into this chat room that says, hey, uh, build, you know, commit number X is running pipeline Y, and it just started. And five minutes later, the bot reports back, hey, it passed or failed or whatever. So people who are developers in your community chats can see what's going on with builds. Uh, when you open an issue, when you close an issue, basically all of your different development operations can be tied into these programs. And that's really useful. We do that as well so that people in the chat can kind of see, oh, look, Nick just pushed off a whole bunch of code. Oh, it failed. Let me call him up and see what's going on right away. Because again, problems never get better over time. So if I screw something up, I can start fixing it. People can call me to ask if they can help and we can kind of work on that together rather than me just sitting in my silo working on code for six months by myself, introducing bugs I won't remember six months from now. No, you know, it's better to work together too, especially when there's a failure like that. I think that's awesome, personally. And the group as a whole fails fast. So, and, and also the group understands what's going on for the most part at every step of the way. Yep. And I'll also bring up... Uh, you know, it's not just for code and to take another, it's generally for code, but let's take a completely opposite example. Like, you know, I know Mike, you were there for the Cisco live session that I just did. Um, there's a lot of stuff up on GitHub for that. There's configuration files, which are just text, text documents. There's also some markdown readmes. And the question is, is there any advantage to running CI on that repository? And I would argue that there is. Consider two things. First, Markdown is kind of a, a code language. It's not exactly complicated, but you can lint Markdown and make sure that your Markdown is proper syntax so that your readmes look good on the website. So I can run, when I commit code, when I update my uh, OSPF troubleshooting session and I update the readme, I can automatically verify that that readme is good quality. Second, what I can do is when I update my devices, I don't know if you've ever dealt with this, Mike, but it's really frustrating. When someone gives you a router config, uh, that says r1.txt, but the host name of the device is r7. Yep. It's like, whoa. And then you load all that up in your network and you're totally confused because the name of the file and the host name were different. This is just one example of a pet peeve of mine. But what I do is I can, when I commit the code, I look inside the file, or sorry, when I commit the files, I look inside the text and I verify that the host name configured is the same as the name of the file. So R1 better be the host name for R1.txt, et cetera. And if that's not true, the build will fail. Now, in, in your environment, that works perfectly fine. Um, now, in the case that some environments might be more specific, like um, what I, I, I'm just asking for my own personal uh, information, so maybe this is the wrong question. But um, so some environments, some people, some of my customers in the past have wanted like the router number. So like the text file might be r1.txt, but the router name might be r1-hub 
uh, or maybe more specific, R1-Hub1 or something like that. And there's Hub2 and there's spokes uh, 1 through 10, um, but they, they wanted the role name in the host name um, for whatever purpose, whatever business purpose. Yeah, this, this is just, a, this is just a, a, a simple example to show that even if you're committing things that aren't code at all, and like I'm pushing them up to GitHub and they're just files. Yeah, they're you just know, text there's files. Yeah. Code there. I just want to make sure that the files have some base level of quality. And I just wanted to show this example. Uh, it's not exactly a killer example by any means, but it's a way to say that if I upload new files and people who are using that, like Cisco customers or attendees, want to clone that repository and they go to load up the lab and all the host names are jumbled, that's going to be pretty bad. Yeah, yeah I, got you. I got you. Troubleshooting. Yeah, that's that's the main point there. It was There's definitely going to be environments where that doesn't work. Uh, but that's just an example. It was a bad uh, question. It's okay. You can call me out on it. It's fine. No, no, no. I think it's fair. I mean, again, I, I in this particular case, you know, you might be able to check, you know, and also another thing I check is I want to make sure that my name and my email are in the banners of the files. Oh, yeah. Files. So people can email so that if someone, Yeah. Yeah. So if someone has a question, they know who to ask. Those kinds of, just basic things like that. But it's a good use case. Yes. It's, I mean, you. I don't think you said it's the best use case, but it's a good use case for doing something like this. Right. It's exa- yeah. It's really about the mentality. It's not oh, that's not code. You can't do CI on it. BS. I can't. But what is code in the first place? Isn't it just text anyway? Yeah. Exactly. Right. You know, and there may not be syntax checking and other things, but I can certainly do a quick skim of my files to make sure they have the critical components that I want. Now, again, I'm not checking live network devices for configs. I'm literally just looking at text files on GitHub. But the advantage is that I can at least guarantee that my host names are correct, that I uploaded the correct number of files, and that my readmes look good. I'm good. I'm happy with that. You could do a syntax check, right? If you wanted to, or I no? could. Yeah, I mean, if I wanted to get really creative and go through and like actually check the Cisco config and and go to that level, I certainly could. Um, yeah, but I kept it. I kept it. You know, this was just an example. Yeah, I kept it real simple, just to put something out there. And so when I push code up, if I accidentally uh, misname a file or something a customer is not going to get confused about it. Perfect. Um, real quick, because I got to put a plug in there for you. Um, so you mentioned your OSPF session at Cisco Live a couple weeks ago at uh, Cisco Live US 2018 in Orlando, Florida. Your session is troubleshooting OSPF and the session ID is BRKRST-3310. And yes, I had that on hand. Um, I will have the link to that in the show notes for everyone so you can actually go and stream the, the session if you have not seen it yet. Cool. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, you got it, man. I was going to say, that's, I mean, that's CI, you know, kind of in a nutshell. The, the, the main point is when you commit your code, which should be regularly, you want to test and integrate and make sure that code is high quality at the source as regularly as possible. And this becomes even more important as the team grows. Uh, and having that reported to your users, again, whether it's through chat ops or email or SMS or whatever makes sense. Distri- you know, uh, disseminating the information about the status of the build and the different steps in the pipeline is going to really have a huge impact on your ability to be productive and not waste time troubleshooting minor issues because let the machine do that heavy lifting for you so you can focus on developing, fe- you know, developing code to bring new features to market. That's how your business wins. Well, that's awesome. So that was a good, I think, uh, a pretty detailed explanation of um, CI, right? Continuous integration. Um, so I think I, I think I get that personally and without really having experience with it. Um, it makes sense to me. I asked a lot of questions. Hopefully they weren't horrible questions like the last one I asked. Um, so I guess we're going into CD, but I'm a little confused because um, it sounds like uh, continuous delivery, but it could also be continuous deployment, right? Yeah, and this is the tricky part is let's just think about kind of uh, chronologically. So let's just assume we've got CI in the network. It's working great. What do we do next? 
Well, the next logical step is we have this code. It's been integrated and tested. It's ready. We want it to be ready for delivery into production. So some people, I've heard it called continuous packaging before. I don't know that that term has really become mainstream, but I, I try to avoid it. But continuous delivery, let's start with that one because the D can really stand for delivery or deployment. With continuous delivery, we want to ensure that our, our tested code is ready for delivery into production at, you know, just basically click the green, the big green button and deploy it. So effectively, it's a manual deployment into production. So you're effectively saying, okay, I ran my code through the uh, the gauntlet of testing and integration. Um, the environments have been built. All the other things have been put into place for this thing to be delivered to production. And all I need to do is take a, some very simple steps to deploy it. And then after I manually deploy it, the ongoing testing and management, or the ongoing testing and maintenance, I should say, the health checking, et cetera, that's all also automated. So really, delivery makes manual the delivery into production and nothing else. That's that's continuous delivery. Interesting. So you have delivery and you have manual deployment. Yeah. So with with delivery, with continuous delivery, the deployment is manual. So I'm basically I'm basically taking the process all the way to the finish line, and I'm saying, "Hey, human, do you want to deploy this? Yes or no? Do you want to press this button? <laughs> yeah, do you want to press the button? Yes or no? Okay." With continuous deployment, that's the next logical stack that says, go ahead and cross the finish line on your own. So that means that I'm writing code and I commit my code to the repository. After the continuous integration, the code is ready for delivery into production. So it gets packaged up, it gets you know containerized or whatever it needs, whatever needs to happen. And then it automatically gets deployed into production with no user intervention. So this is a fully automated step. Now, this doesn't always make sense for every business because sometimes you may not want to just commit code and have it be deployed automatically. And I think one example that that strikes me is, you know, if I'm working on a big, let's say Google or Facebook, like a, a website where you make thousands of changes a day and they can all be pushed to production and that's fine. But what about your mobile app? Like you ever notice on your phone, like sometimes you, uh, your apps are unavailable because they're being updated. That's okay when it happens every couple of weeks, right? Yeah, yeah. What if your app what if your app was spinning with updates every 13 seconds? No. Not going to work, right? I want to so, play my emoji be, game, okay? I want to Yeah, yeah. There might be some there might be some value in kind of batching those updates for over a couple of weeks or two. I think most organizations most most fast organizations update their mobile apps with minor features every couple of weeks. Like I know for example, I'm a big consumer of uh Amazon's Audible service for audiobooks. And I would say approximately, I mean, again, I haven't measured it, but it seems to me about once every two weeks that thing gets updated and I have to restart it. So just as an example of continuous delivery, I'm pretty confident that the developers of that app are using continuous delivery. And then every couple of weeks, they hit the big green button and deploy to all the mobile app customers. Um, whereas Amazon website, for example, might be using continuous deployment because they have so many web servers to do that. And the client just logs in and does their business it's not like that you know at least i'm not aware of like an amazon shopping app at least for laptops so people typically interface with that through the web so there might be different use cases based on the business need and the type of application and the mechanism of uh the delivery or the device like the phone or the laptop well i'm wondering now like like because i'm learning a lot of this today right so i'm like my our listeners today um i'm wondering if like a lot of things do this and you don't even realize it so um for for the Zigbits site, zigbits.tech, I use I use a uh, WordPress. 
um, and it updates automatically. Like the, my hosting provider just updates the site and updates WordPress whenever it's ready to go. So I'm wondering if it's something very similar to that. They're doing continuous integration, continuous delivery, but they're doing more of a, I don't know if they would do, a, would you, would they do continuous deployment or would it be manual deployment? What do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a, it's, it's hard. It's always kind of hard to tell. Um, and it really depends a lot on the organization and the culture and the business. So, well, I have no interaction with it personally. So I know it's a weird question. Probably I have no interaction. They just do it. Like I don't get to deny it. I don't get to approve it. It just happens. Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's hard to guess. I would imagine that. I mean, <clears throat> I think it's fair to say that continuous deployment is a pretty good goal. Like if you're doing continuous delivery, which you should, and and make no mistake, there's generally no reason not to do continuous integration and continuous delivery. Like you should be able to get from the start line to two inches before the finish line and get all that work integrated. And whether you manually or whether you automatically deploy to production or not, that's kind of a more of an internal business decision because it's so easy. Like, is, is it really that hard to click a button? No, not really. So a lot of organizations, for example, ours, uh, we just do continuous delivery and deploy things to production when we need to. Gotcha. Okay. And part of that has to do with our environment and also the way we've done our tests. So for example, a lot of people in the Ansible community, they jump right into doing uh, infrastructure as code or IAC type designs. And this is where okay, nobody logs into devices anymore. We're going to define our network state and behaviors in our code. And that code is going to be version controlled, managed, CI, CD, et cetera. And our machines are going to go and configure the network against the state we've defined. So declarative networking or intent-based networking, whatever you want to call it, that's kind of the idea of infrastructure as code. But we don't do that. Number one, it's really, really hard and time-consuming and cognitively challenging to actually do this in production. And quite frankly, we don't have the brain cells in our group to do that right now, including me. I don't even know how to do it. Not very well, at least. Um, So continuous deployment doesn't really make sense because I'm not just going to commit code and have it go and change my network. So what we do instead is continuous delivery, which is I can develop all my device configurations and I can make some changes on the network that, you know, maybe if I'm setting up, um, some new BGP peers or whatever, I do all of it, but I leave the peer shut down. And then the human has to go in and no shut it. That's just kind of a, a simple example of something we might do. Or maybe I go and I stage all my IPsec templates and profiles and transform sets, but I don't actually apply it to my tunnels. Because that applying it's easy. It's only that one command it's easy to do. And maybe you want to have a human logged into the router while it happens to troubleshoot any unforeseen problems, but you can still stage everything else. So automate all the heavy lifting and the testing associated with it, but the actual flipping on of the switch, the highest risk part of the design or the process is what a human will oversee uh, with continuous delivery. Continuous deployment basically says, no humans allowed, I'm going to do everything. And sometimes that makes sense. Yeah. So you're going back to what 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 is right for the, the environment, what is right for the organization. Exactly. And sometimes it's a progression. And, and it may change over time, just like all things. You know, business drivers change over time, which means your automation and DevOps strategies may change over time. Um, you know, one example for me was uh, my website. And I'll just talk briefly about kind of how the pipeline works for mine. So when I commit code for my website, and again, it's like super JV HTML stuff. Like I'm not a web developer at all. I'm pretty terrible at it. So when I commit code for my website, well, the way I do it is I do it in Git, or I, I do my edits, commit it up to AWS Code Commit, which is like a GitHub as a, you know, a, I should say a remote Git repository in AWS, so it's private. 
kind of similar to GitHub, but a little bit different. Once that gets committed there, I have an event in CloudWatch that kicks off code pipeline. So that's another service that allows you to basically take individual build steps and put them in a sequence to identify what your pipeline is going to be. So in my pipeline, I have a build step. And inside that build step, there are four stages. At least I think there's four stages. I don't have it in front of me. But really what I'm doing is, yeah, there, there's four. What I do is first I need to install some packages. So for example, when I, when I do this build stage, a Ubuntu flavored Docker container gets spun up somewhere in AWS. And this is vanilla. It's got nothing on it other than my code. This is the worker bee that's going to actually do the testing on my code and deploy to production. First step is I need to install some packages. For example, uh, some Python packages, some linters like the tidy linter, T-I-D-Y, used for HTML linting. Um, I have some Python scripts that I wrote that check the quality of my website. They perform some HTTP gets. They check the size of my images. They make sure my links aren't dead, etc. Um, I need to install some packages in order for those things to work. So I do that. I also install PyLint and Bandit because I, even though Python isn't part of my website, the script is used to check my website, and I want to check that script for any syntax or security problems. Yeah, okay. Makes sense. You know, the next one after that is kind of my pre-build or, you know, before I run my script, before I do all the work, that's when I lint all my files. So before I execute any code, I do all my linting. We talked about that earlier. I check my HTML for good syntax and cleanliness. Then I also check uh, the Python file for any security problems or whatever. Then during the script phase, I actually run the Python checker and says, hey, from the local files that just got committed, so open up the index.html, follow all the links in the document. So for example, find all the hrefs, uh, resolve them, and then if any of them are HTTP, go do an HTTP get. If they're files, make sure that they're valid. If they're images, make sure they're the right image type and the proper size, and I do that uh, over, all my web, over all the different pages on my website. Once that's done, I copy all that code into production. Like, so I actually do continuous deployment where if it passes all my tests, it gets copied from code build into AWS S3, a simple storage service. That's where my website's hosted. It's just a static, uh, static, no PHP type website hosted there. Gets copied into production. And then after the post install, and again, this is important, um, I have to, I run my check again except this time, except I don't, I don't target the local index HTML file, I target ngrusmc.net. So in the first example, I said, hey, look at this local file and follow uh, the tree of links, make sure it works. Step two is copy it to production. Step three is, okay, now go and do that check again against the production server, against the production website and make sure that it works. So after about three minutes, I'll get that email saying that your pipeline succeeded. And if I go to my website, all the updates will be there that were in the code that I committed. Wow, that's awesome. So you, I think you, sh you mentioned before the show that you had an, like you actually did an update and was it today? Yeah, I did a, I did a few this morning. Yeah, I was, uh, some people in Europe, I was, I was looking for other people who have good blogs and good websites to add it to my links page. So as the guys in Europe, you know, it's like noon their time. So I was talking to them just to get their sites and get their, you know, make sure I got their last name spelled correctly and all that and push those up to my website. And, you know, I, I push it at 645 and 648, it's done. Wow. And I get an email telling me that. So I don't have to sit here and test it. Now, granted, like a lot of developers and a lot of people, I like to run some tests locally because 
I tend to get frustrated. Like if I commit code and I get an email that says failed, now I have to go fix it. I'd rather just do it right. So sometimes I'll spend two or three minutes and just do a little bit of local testing. But what I don't want to do is copy all the files into production and then go and walk all the links on the website. Because remember, I'm not, I don't sit there and click all 50 or 100 links on my website. That would take way too long. But I want the machine to go and resolve all those links regularly so that, for example, Mike, uh, I've got a couple of links to our Zigbits podcast on there. If you decide to change some of the links or you change your domain name, which is perfectly okay for you to do, I want my tool to tell me that, hey, this link is no longer, uh, you know, 404 not found or whatever. So then I can say, then I can shoot you an email and say, hey, Mike, did you change this? Oh, yeah, it's, it's this now. So rather than, because I get really frustrated, I don't know about you, but I get frustrated when I go to a website and I click on something and I get a link, you know, link is dead or yep. 404 not found. Like that, it really frustrates me. It's just poor, poor maintenance. So I want that to be automatic because I know that as my site grows, I'm not going to have time to check all the links. So I want a machine to do that for me. And if any of the links don't work, the build fails, the website does not get updated, and it's on me to fix it or to identify why that why that problem happened. That's awesome, dude. Seriously. First off, two things. Um, it's awesome that you have links to the Zigbits, you know, podcast episodes or whatnot, but then you have an automatic tool that checks your links and you make sure that it actually, they all work. I hate when you go to a site and the links don't work. Exactly. Yep. So that's the way, yeah. And it's all, uh, all that's public. Um, and I've got it on my website. So if you, if for anyone listening, if you go to the website, njrusmc.net and at the very bottom, there's a link that says CICD. If you click that, I show you my build specifications file, which has, uh, which has kind of those four phases of the build process. I have all the linters in there. I have the Python script that checks the links. Uh, I've got the AWS CLI commands that I use to copy code from the Ubuntu container where the code's being tested. This is basically the CI CD uh, container that gets spun up virtually by code build. Copy it into AWS 3 in the bucket where my website is hosted. So all that's uh, basically open source and you can see it. Uh, I also have a sample text output file that I just copied. So if you follow that file, that's what happens when you run these tests manually. That's the kind of output you would see just as an example. And I wanted to show that for people who haven't used this technology before can kind of get a feel for how it's meant to work because it can be really intimidating when you don't have a lot of good public examples. And I was fortunate enough, again, Pete Lumbus, who I've got a, a link to his stuff in the show notes from GitLab, he has a, a pretty good public example uh, for network gear. Um, but of course, you know, looking at people's examples is only good if you really understand it. And in order to understand it, you kind of have to do it yourself. So you got to live it. Yeah. Yeah. This was my journey to, to kind of learn it for myself. And I wanted to share my, my experience with everyone else by doing, uh, doing something similar. Well, I think it's great personally. I really do. I think, it, I mean, so I got a, a question kind of off topic because you're, you're doing this in your own own home kind of not home but it's your own website so i know it's not hosted at home um so are you the type of guy that has like you know crazy stuff deployed at home no i have almost nothing here and i'm like you know right right around yeah i mean around 2014 after i finished my first ccie i was like you know i want to i want to branch out from some of the network stuff i want to learn about vmware and virtualization and storage and all that so i you know i got a couple servers and i, I built them up a little bit and I spent maybe two or three thousand dollars, which you know it's not crazy money, but I've, it's about a you know and plus a switch that I bought. So I've got a four U stack sitting in front of me right here. It's shallow. It's only about twenty inches deep. Uh, I haven't gotten rid of it yet, but I also haven't turned it on in about two years. Oh so, wow, wow! <laughs> uh, I do I do all my development in AWS just about. Wow. 
and I found I found that it's it's cost effective. Uh, I like the fact that it exposes me to cloud technologies, and the fact that I can kind of use it anywhere and not worry about VPNs. Uh, you know, I have a small apartment, um, so this uh, this equipment is in my my study area, which is only about ten feet from the living room. So I don't want to have a loud, hot server stack. Especially running today, and, with how hot it is no, outside. Yeah, you yeah know? no kidding. I'm yeah. over here with like three monitors, a uh, computer at my desk, uh, a little little um, a small rack of equipment. I mean, it, it just adds up quickly. And this is my my cut down version because everything else is in storage. So yeah, yeah, I, I think it's. I don't have a lot of crazy stuff here. Just a little bit of hardware to test stuff. Once in a while, I'll you know I might need it to do something. I I might have turned it on earlier this year. I don't really remember anymore. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, with the cloud service routers and virtual or iOS XR. I mean, for routing purposes, we pretty much can do everything virtual now too. So it, right, and all the all the Ansible playbooks on my GitHub. Like when I developed those, I would just spin up routers in AWS. See, yeah, I figured as much. Okay, pay the fifteen cents an hour for a couple hours, and you know that. The cost of that, even even if it was a little bit more than the cost of electricity and cooling, it's still worth it because I got more and more exposure with cloud. Yeah, you're learning cloud. It's hard to put a it's hard to put a dollar value on that. It's like what's your end goal? What's your end destination? If it's to learn cloud, yeah. that's perfect, right? It keep you up to speed on the the merging technologies and whatnot. And you're you're writing the 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 books or the little uh, study guides for some of that stuff too. So that's helpful. Um, so. Uh, as we're here, so I think I think you gave me some great uh, definitions and understanding of what CI and then also what CD is, depending on what the D, of course, if it's delivery or deployment. And you gave both, I think, great examples. I think at this point, like if someone were to start out with CI, CD, kind of what, what could they do from your perspective? So from my personal experience, there are, I mean, of course, there are, just like everything else, there are a lot of different specific products that you can use out there. There's different repositories, there's different version control systems, there's different CI uh, organizations. I'll talk about the three that I used or the three that I actively use today. So the first and probably the easiest is the Travis CI. So it's a travis-ci.org. The reason I like Travis so much is that they're free for any open source project. So if you have something on GitHub and it's not a private repository that's considered open source, so what you can do is you can commit your code up to GitHub and within probably five minutes, again, you still have to read a little bit about Travis, understand how the files are structured. So there's a little bit of learning, but you know, after 10 or 15 minutes of reading about it, uh, probably in a couple button clicks, you can have that integrated in. Again, this is assuming you've, you've provided your own tests already and you've done all that and you just want Travis to run the code every time you commit, that's pretty easy to do. Uh, integrates really seamlessly with GitHub. Um, I'm sure it integrates pretty well with other platforms too, but I've only ever used it for GitHub. This would be my recommendation for starting off. So for those out there, uh, let's say I, I'm going to assume that you know at least one programming language at a novice level. What I would recommend is just do something really easy. Write a couple functions that just do basic uh, arithmetic, like so, like a function that takes in a number and squares it. So you know, a function is f x return x times x, for example. That's your code. Now, how would you write a test for that code? Well, I might say, assert that f of 0 is 0. Assert that f of 2 is 4. Assert that f of 3 is 9. For example, you see what I'm doing there? I'm just taking the numbers and squaring it, and that's going to be the test I want to run. Put that in another file and ensure that when you call Travis, that test script gets executed. And if it fails, Travis will report back that your build is failing, and it'll be 
then you'll have that status inside the CI system that tells you when you committed your code, it failed. And of course, if you were to go into your square function and say instead of x times x, if you accidentally said something like uh, x times x plus 1, your, your test would fail. Now imagine that was instead of a one line simple function, imagine it was a thousand line super complicated block of code and somebody changed the greater than sign to a less than sign. You'll find out right away that there's a problem because your test will fail, but you won't be guessing where the problem is. You'll know exactly what function failed and what test cases failed so you can fix the problem in minutes instead of days. All right. So that's that's step one. Gotcha. Yeah. So Travis is one option with, uh, and, and all five of my uh, open source Ansible projects are all using Travis today. So you can check all those, look at the .travis.yaml files if you want to see what the specific build specifications look like for those different projects. We'll have those links in the show notes just so everyone knows. They'll, they'll be in the show notes. The, uh, the next step is kind of a combination of AWS code build and code pipeline and code commit. Um, code commit is kind of the equivalent of GitHub except private. Again, that's not, not a great comparison, but what I'm really saying is it's a remote Git repository. Code pipeline is an abstraction that allows you to take different steps in a CI process. So for example, a build step, a deploy step, et cetera, and you can string those together. In my case, I use the build step here by itself to do both the testing and the deployment. It's a little more complicated to get set up because there are a lot of different moving parts. Uh, part of that, I think, is just because of the power of a giant cloud provider like Amazon. It gives you tremendous flexibility to do things. Not to say Travis and GitHub aren't flexible, but with AWS, you have to do a little more elbow grease up front to get that working. Part of the reason I'm using uh, AWS instead of just GitHub and Travis for my website is that I don't, even though, of course, my website's mostly HTML and all you have to do is right-click and say view source to see my code, I generally didn't want that to be open source because there are other things in my S3 bucket and other pieces of code that I don't reveal publicly on my website that I still want to stay private. So just as an example, if you ever want to do some private development and you maybe want some alternatives to common things like GitHub and Travis, just as an example, uh, the AWS solution set, I do like it quite a bit. Uh, and it works, it works real well for my website. So that's another option. You can use kind of the all baked into one cloud provider solution. And I'm, I'm positive that Microsoft Azure and Google uh, Google Cloud have comparable offerings, but personally, I've used the AWS one. All right, cool. Is that free? Uh, that's not free. The billing for it, you know, I was looking at my billing this morning, and the total cost of me using this for my website for the past month. So that includes uh, all the builds, the spinning up, the containers, the maintaining the code, committing it, transferring the data, storing it in the bucket. The total, and again, I'm not including like the DNS uh, registrar fees or any of that. But if we ignore all the DNS costs, it was about a dollar fifty for a month. Wow. Yeah, so it's U.S. dollars, so yeah. not a lot of money. No, it's like pennies, seriously, almost legit. That's awesome. Yep. And the the third option is using GitLab, and one of the cool things about GitLab is that you can download the Omnibus install, which is uh, comes as a like a Red Hat RPM or a uh, Debian uh, dpackage or apt thing that you can just install and run it locally on a Linux box. And it's cool because they have an online website kind of like GitHub that you can use uh, for a more public kind of SaaS type, or you can run it locally. And in our case, we run it locally at my customer and we use this. What's really cool about GitLab is that it comes integrated with CI. So you don't have to tie GitLab into Travis. Like GitLab CI, it's built in. So when you commit code into GitLab, you have these uh, other VMs out there called runners 
and the runners will run tests. So in our environment, because it's very small, we have one GitLab repository tied in with one GitLab runner. And whenever we check code in, the GitLab runner will run the test script just like everything else. And again, they all have a very similar format of the install, the pre-build, the build, the post-build. There's multiple stages in that process. And specifically for GitLab, earlier in the session, Mike, we talked through those four detailed phases like the linting, the unit testing, the role testing, and the playbook testing. Those are the four phases that we use in production within GitLab. Ah, okay. So that's the kind of the idea. Um, the other cool thing about the GitLab uh, on-prem install is that it call comes with uh, Mattermost, and that's just a, a kind of I don't want I, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like Slack or like Viber. It's just another kind of internet-based chat developer-friendly thing. And through Mattermost is how we have our chat messages from GitLab. So when we commit code, the pipeline starts. We get a chat. Hey, the the, the Nick pushed the code out. The pipeline started at this time for this branch and this commit. Ten minutes later, it passes or failed or whatever. So that all comes integrated with GitLab. So it's basically one VM that does all of it plus the runners that actually run the tests. So it's a pretty lightweight install. Uh, getting all that working definitely takes a little bit of Linux knowledge, but it's not terribly difficult. You just need to have some comfort with it and be willing to uh, be willing to explore a bit. But it's been very effective for us, uh, both in terms of cost and uh, and testing quality. Well, thank you. That, I, I, I've learned a lot. I swear I've learned a lot today. So um, uh, I'm going to have to try some of this stuff out. I'll start with Travis CI, I think, um, since you said that's kind of the in, in beginner step, baby steps, baby steps for me. Yeah. And I think, you know, we talked a little bit about examples, but I'll just verbally mention them now. So, you know, each of these three different options, for example, taking GitHub and Travis, which is which is very popular, uh, versus the AWS kind of internal developer suite of tools versus something like GitLab on-premise or on-site where you have uh, GitLab and Mattermost and ChatOps and whatever. The, the To see the example, I, I think I have some examples of all of these. So if you want to see the first one with Travis CI and tied in with uh, GitHub, I've got those five Ansible playbooks, uh, five different projects on my GitHub. You can check those out and there'll be a link in the show notes. So I would recommend you look at those. Um, I also use my Cisco Live session. Again, uh, probably the lamest CI example in existence, but if you want to see that one, you can certainly check that. That's there as well. And if you want to see the AWS code build, code deploy, code commit, uh, again, code commit is a repository, so you won't really see a whole lot about that because that's private, but definitely the code deploy and the code build, uh, I'm sorry, not code deploy, code pipeline and code build. You would, uh, you'd be able to see that on my website, and you go to my website down at the uh, the bottom. There's a CI/CD link. It'll show you the build spec, all the steps in that, plus the individual scripts that I use to actually test and validate my code, and the continuous deployment step of copying that code into production. For for a GitLab example, uh, I'll turn you to Pete Lumbus's uh, CI/CD site. Uh, he's got a project up in GitLab which does some stuff with network devices that'll show how we can do some linting on our code first and then actually spin up some virtual instances of a network, build a little mock network, and then use uh, a script, kind of a scripting language or an enforcement language called behave to ensure that the state of the devices is what we expect. So for example, if I stand up a, a leaf spine network with two spines and two leaves, um, I would expect these characteristics in the network and that and the way that he's built it can ensure that proper state. That would that guarantees that the roles that he created, those Ansible roles, can be applied to production with predictable results. So I would encourage you to take a look at all those different examples. 
Uh, play around with the different products. I think what you'll notice over time is that they're they're more similar than they are different. They all solve similar problems, just with different uh, mechanisms, different bells and whistles. But in general, I think conceptually, if you can understand the value of CI and how it fits into the overall DevOps concept of smaller batch sizes, more frequent changes, quality at the source, automated integration testing, and easier, more frequent deployments to production, as long as that's clear and everyone un understands what's going on, I think it generally makes it easier to ingest and learn about CI/CD, so that you're not just doing technology work for the sake of doing it, but rather you're trying to solve specific business problems, typically around code quality, time to market, customer satisfaction, etc. Well, Nick, that that was really outstanding, like usual. I mean, that you're, you're just setting the bar high everywhere. So, um, I learned a lot today. Um, hopefully our listeners did too. Um, again, today's topic was CICD. Do you have any um, last minute words of wisdom, comments, questions, concerns, anything like that? No, I think this was a, this was a great show. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm super pumped about CICD because I've been doing it like nonstop for five months and I haven't been, I haven't been configuring routers in a while, so I'm getting kind of rusty at that, but I've been, I've been really enjoying this, uh, this kind of work. I see enormous benefits uh, for the network community and being able to maintain the quality of our code that we use for automation that ultimately makes our jobs easier. And I would encourage all networkers out there to explore this in greater detail. Well, there you go. That was, that was from Nick himself. Um, uh, I, I do have one question for you, because you kind of tied it right in there. Um, I was going to ask earlier, but I wasn't sure. So would you call yourself, what would you call yourself nowadays? Are you a networking guy? Are you a DevOps guy? Are you, what, what, what role would you give yourself if you were to give yourself a role? Ah, I know I'm putting you on the spot, right? There, yeah, there's a term out there called net DevOps. I'm skeptical about that because, uh, so I don't know if anyone out there listens to like heavy metal, but there's this, there's these people out there that they, they over categorize metal music. They're like, Oh, that's not metal. That's, that's black metal deathcore or whatever. And I was like, I, 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 I hate people like that because all they do is they split, they, they rip the community apart into these stupid categories. And while I understand it's important to differentiate between different styles of a thing, I think at the end of the day, we're going to see those barriers actually get broken down and people are going to become more general engineers. Now, even though the titles may be retained, so for example, I still can sit to answer your question, Mike, in a sentence, I still consider myself a network engineer, um, but I consider myself a network engineer in the year 2018, meaning I'm focusing more on not automation for the sake of the tool and for the sake of the time savings, but for the sake of the improvement of the process and the, and the, more rapid delivery of business value. I think that's what's going to define the future of network engineers in general. It's not a technology fad. Um, it's not a panacea that you can just deploy it and your problems go away. I think it's an overall mindset shift. So I'd still consider myself a networker just with a little bit stronger bias towards the DevOps kind of mentalities. But for me, I, I don't think I, quite frankly, even if there were a term net DevOps engineer, I don't think I would, I don't, yeah, it, number one, it's kind of weird. And number two, I don't know that, I mean, despite uh, being on this podcast and having done quite a bit of CICD and DevOps stuff, there are guys out there who have really lived and breathed this stuff for probably close to a decade now. Uh, and I feel like I have, would have a long way to go before, uh, before earning that. So I'm still a network guy, just right. uh, 
a, a, a Padawan, if you will. <laughs> I just put you on the spot, man. I'm sorry, but I thought no, it was, okay. I thought it was a good lead too, though, because you've been doing it for so long. Um, I mean, again, to to us, maybe six months seems like it's a long time, but it's not. It's a short time in a career, but still, it, it, it's. I was just curious. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still, I'm still network guy for sure. Um, just again, to, I think it's important, just in general, Mike. I know you've probably gone through this, and I know uh, a lot of other engineers I know as well have. You know, one year we're really into one thing and we get really good at it, and then we move on to another thing that we really like and we get good at that too. So I try to, I try to do that. You know, last year I spent a lot of time doing stuff with cloud and, and design and some automation. This year I've gone kind of. Uh, really big into the CI/CD stuff, and maybe next year I'll find something other uh, cool to do. Maybe it'll be SD WAN. Who knows? Who knows, right? Yeah, but I think it all kind of revolves around improving the lives of networkers because a lot of these new technologies or new ideas that are coming out of the software development world, or like in the previous podcast, the manufacturing community from 30 years ago, they're extremely relevant for the work that we do. And I think it's on us as engineers in this industry to help translate the value that those solutions and thought processes bring into the daily work that we have as networkers. Um, I think that's probably value more valuable for everyone. Um, you know, probably a greater value than just maintaining the status quo in the networking world is the more different things we work on and get good at, the better experiences we can bring into the network community as a whole. And I think that's probably the most important thing. So that when someone tells you they're a network engineer, instead of that word meaning, oh, you can figure routers and do code upgrades, that's kind of how it's perceived today. I think over time, I'm hoping that the, that the perception of network engineer is someone who can do those other basic network functions, but also understands designs, business drivers, automation, DevOps, all the stuff we've talked about. So I'm kind of trying to evangelize that point is to cha- you know steer the ship of network engineering little by little towards a more generalist approach or towards a more uh, diversified approach, I should say. Um, I think that's really what's going to be big for our community. No, I, I agree with what you just said. I, I know I kind of put you on the spot for that question. So um, I was just going to say you don't self-identify as a net DevOps, and I don't think you should um, personally. I think I think what you said is you hit it right on, on the head of the nail um, because um, this industry, is, it needs a shift in what we traditionally call as network engineers. Um, and, and that shift is going to be hard to do and it's going to take time, but it needs a shift. Yeah, man. Yep, I think I think we're I think we're well on our way. And again, the more examples, the more the more content we put in the pool, the easier it is for people to to latch on. And that's part of the reason I do all this open source stuff is I want to provide these clear examples to people because I remember you know just a couple months ago I'd go to someone's GitHub page, and in their in the root of their repository they'd have a Travis file and a requirements.txt and all these other files and a make file and like I didn't know what any of that stuff was. And I was like, man, there's so much here I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> But the problem, though, is that this these were their personal projects that were very advanced and very well written. I tried to take a different approach and say, let me provide a lot of examples with extensive documentation on how the CICD works. So less focus on the code, more on how the code is tested a little bit. Um, again, that's not completely true for all my projects, but I wanted to, again, provide examples for people to look at these things, give them the opportunity to ask questions so they can learn it too. Awesome. Awesome. Um, last question for you, and then we'll close out, man. Uh, where, where can uh, everyone listening find you? Uh, you can find me at my website, njrusmc.net, or at Twitter, which is at Nick Russo 42518. Awesome. Well, Nick, thanks again. I appreciate your time. Uh, I appreciate your teaching me a number of things today. Um, I got a lot to look into, a lot more homework than I had uh, before we started talking. Um, 
Hey, friends, nerds, geeks, and ziglets, that's that's going to close out today's episode of the Zigbits Network Design Podcast on CICDCY. It's a little catchy title today. Uh, thanks for listening. Be sure to visit zigbits.tech to join the conversation and access today's show notes. Today's show notes will be at zigbits.tech slash 33. If you liked the, today's episode, you liked the content we gave you, if it inspired you at all, resonated something within you, provide a, uh, provide us some feedback at uh, feedback.zigbits.tech. You can also find us on all the socials. That's Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook by searching for Zigbits. Don't forget to join us in two weeks for another episode where we will continue to provide you with real-world context around technology. Bye for now.